studying diplomacy in the early modern period helps us debunk the kind of myths and stereotypes about other cultures, countries, political communities that often originate in the pre-modern world. The critique against the dynastic court and its lavish ceremonial lifestyle often presented these rituals as oriental pomp. Whereas in fact, such rituals were a central element of diplomacy. They were sort of a strategic element of diplomatic encounter and not a sign of oriental otherness. So looking at concrete encounters, analyzing the strategies, the behavior patterns, the mutual responses of diplomats helps us to rethink some of these stereotypes. Welcome to SCAS Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. My name is Nathalie von der Leer, and in this episode I talk to Jan Hennings, Associate Professor of History and Head of the Department of History at the Central European University in Vienna. He was a fellow at SCAS during the academic year of 2020-2021. Jan Hennings is a historian of the early modern period, specializing in Russian-European and more recently Russian-Ottoman relations. And this is the third episode in our theme, Diplomacy in International Relations. Very welcome to SCAS Talks. Would you like to say a few more words about yourself? Thank you for having me on this podcast. I'm glad to have this opportunity to talk about my work. I'm from Germany originally, and I studied in Rostock, the University of Rostock, and then did my PhD in the UK at Cambridge and spent a good four years as a research fellow in Oxford. And before I came to CEU in Vienna, I spent two years in Istanbul as, as a visiting professor. And... All these stays abroad and encounters have also informed my work in, in many ways. And as part of the series on diplomacy and international relations, my work fits because I use diplomacy as a context to study all sorts of historic encounters between people, communities, states, objects, and even animals. Great. We were very interesting to hear more about uh, your research. So very briefly then, what is your research about? I study the um, relations between states and diplomatic practice in the early modern period. And I look at how diplomats communicated with each other and about each other. And communication did not only take place in written form, you know, treaties, letters, correspondence, international law, all the things that we associate with modern diplomacy today, but also in all sorts of nonverbal communication, ritual, ceremonies, and protocol. For example, a key moment in diplomatic contact was the presentation of ambassadors' diplomatic credentials, a lavish public performance which was attended by many people. And these ceremonies are interesting because they tell us something about a state's or a monarch's or a city's um, place in the world. And in my previous work, I have studied Russia's, or Muscovy, as it was known at the time, Muscovy's place in these rituals, in these um, sovereignty contests. And more recently, 
I focus on the first permanent ambassador to the Ottoman Empire, Peter Tolstoy, who spent the first decade of the 18th century in Istanbul. And he produced a voluminous diary that chronicles his day-to-day activities as a representative of the Tsar among the diplomatic corps on the Bosphorus. And sources like this and others give us deeper insights into the inner workings of an embassy at the time. So what was an embassy in the 18th century to begin with? What was the role of an ambassador? What kind of people and networks did the ambassador rely on? What did it mean to establish a permanent embassy for the very first time in the Russian context? In Istanbul, the capital of the Ottoman Empire. These are the kind of questions that I look into. How come you got interested in this area to start with? When I was 19, Germany still had compulsory military service, but you could also do Zivildienst, a sort of community service that counted towards military service. And I did this in St. Petersburg. So I spent one year in St. Petersburg working as a caregiver for elderly people and learning Russian along the way. So I had the language before I even started studying history. And then when I enrolled in university, I studied European history. And history was still under the influence of the so-called cultural turn and all sorts of new theories and methods that came with these turns in the field. And the early modern era was a particularly dynamic environment. But diplomatic history was still very much untouched by these new developments in historiography. And Russia never seemed to be part of the discussion. So that made me curious. I wanted to explore diplomatic history as a cultural historian. And I wanted to understand why Russia was not part of the picture until the 18th century. So I combined my own biographical experience and the language I picked up in St. Petersburg with an academic interest picked up as a student in the early 2000s. You study diplomacy in early modern history. How does this kind of diplomacy differ from what we associate with diplomacy today? Let's start with what is actually similar, because we are talking about relations between political communities. There's always an exchange of people involved, of objects, or as I said in the beginning, animals occasionally, all of whom represent political powers in foreign relations. And political powers need to recognize each other as sovereign to start negotiation, diplomatic relations. And there's a number of concepts that are familiar to us today. The theory of representation, legal fictions of equality or hierarchy, reciprocity, extraterritoriality, immunity, and so on and so forth. But exactly what these concepts meant in another historical period can be very different from what we associate with diplomacy today. So the equality and independence of sovereign states, for example, the presence of a professional diplomatic corps resident embassies, consular services, etc. All these things have a very long history. And I'm interested in how people in the 17th and in the 18th century approached these issues, especially in geographical and cultural contexts that go beyond Western Europe. But I'm not interested so much in continuity in this long history of all these institutions and developments. I think we learn a lot about the past and perhaps from the past by looking for difference. And early modern diplomacy was very different for a number of reasons. One is that the relations between 
foreign powers, weren't relations between the kind of nation states that emerged in the 19th century and have dominated the historiography to a great extent. The role of the dynastic court as a center of politics in the world of princes and monarchs and queens and so on informed the ways in which diplomatic practice was conducted. There were many diplomats around, but there was no real professional education for diplomats yet. You have a series of diplomatic manuals and handbooks emerging, but the kind of career diplomat that staffs embassies today is something that um, is specific to the modern period. This is something that we don't see in the early modern period yet, despite a lot of theorizing about diplomacy that starts already in the 17th century and earlier, actually. And even the term diplomacy did not emerge until the very end of the 18th century. So when we're talking about early modern diplomacy, we are using a term to describe a period in which such vocabulary and all the concepts that are attached to this vocabulary did not yet exist. So the aim is not so much to provide an early modern definition of diplomacy, but to problematize the very term and to understand it through the social, political and cultural practices of the time, rather than through our modern day notions of diplomacy. And the question then is, what is this diplomacy in the early modern period? And if we are looking for differences, then a key difference is that the way in which the world was organized followed a principle based on hierarchy rather than equality. Notions of equality and the independence of states do emerge in political thought already, but in practice, princes were still trying to put themselves above others. And that had to do with the role of the court, the dynastic court, as a social environment, as opposed to the sort of territorially bounded sovereign nation state as a key actor in diplomacy. And diplomats behave to a large extent like courtiers. And the court was a thoroughly hierarchical society. So that's one or two difference. Hierarchy, the role of the court, and thirdly, the importance of intermediaries, people whose loyalties were not attached to formal appointment, but to all sorts of religious affiliations, financial incentive, regional expertise, personal relations, patronage, and so forth. And you had a lot of actors in diplomacy that didn't qualify as diplomats in the modern sense of the term. Merchants, pilgrims, all sorts of people who could take charge of diplomatic business on behalf of a power. And they could do that simultaneously serving two powers. So this was also one of the key differences. You mentioned animals. I'm just curious, where do the animals come in? Animals were part of this very important element of diplomatic exchanges in the period, and that is gift exchange. So diplomats would bring exotic animals as gifts. There's one example, famous example, that the pelicans in St. James Park in London arrived through the Russian embassy in the early 1660s as a gift from the Russian czar and the diplomats to the English monarch. It's a broad range of animals. You have lions or falcons, birds, all sorts of different animals. I think it would be nice to hear an example of diplomacy in early modern history. I'd like to talk about 
Peter Tolstoy, who was the first permanent Russian ambassador to the Ottoman Empire in the early 18th century. While there had been many ad hoc embassies traveling from Moscow to Istanbul before, Tolstoy was the first formally appointed ambassador to establish a resident embassy. But he relied on services of someone else, Safa Lukic Vladislavich Raguzinsky, as he's known. Raguzinsky had come to Istanbul from the Republic of Ragusa, or the city of Dubrovnik, on the Adriatic Sea. This was someone who introduced the ambassador to members of the European Diplomatic Corps in Istanbul, gathered a lot of information on behalf of the ambassador. He recruited personnel for the embassy. He organized financial transfers and so on. The embassy was basically that person, Raguzinski, in terms of the practical organization and the personal contacts that the ambassador Tolstoy needed. He received trade privileges from the Russian Tsar, this Raguzinski. He went to the Russian Empire, was awarded handsomely for his service, and had a house in Moscow. But Raguzinski was not employed in the Russian Foreign Service as we might think of it today. He was not a professional diplomat with formal accreditation. He was one of these intermediaries between empires, the Russian, the Ottoman Empire, who could move between these worlds easily, thanks to language skills, his connections, and because he was not restricted by formal procedure and all these ceremonial constraints that kept the ambassador in thrall. And by the way, he later led a Russian embassy to China to negotiate the border between Russia and the Jing Empire, resulting in the Treaty of Kyachta in 1727. It's a very good example of, of an intermediary who um, was very important to Russian diplomacy at the beginning of the 18th century. And in general, such informal relations were typical, especially in diplomacy. Another example for this notion of hierarchy, which I think is a hallmark of early modern diplomacy, is a case that I looked at a long time ago, but which lends itself as an example so well, because it took place in Vienna in 1698, when Peter the Great, as part of his travels to Western Europe, visited Leopold I at the court in Vienna. And today you might think, okay, you have an emperor, you have a czar in town, why not do summit diplomacy and just bring them together so that they can talk about political business and Peter had come to convince the emperor that he should continue the war against the Ottoman Empire, which he didn't manage to do. But the episode is interesting nevertheless because of the way in which both the court and the Russian embassy were struggling to bring these two people, these two rulers together precisely because of these unresolved issues around hierarchy and superiority or equality. Because once you have a czar and an emperor in the room, you also have to say who occupies which rank in the hierarchy. You can imagine that none of the two were willing to give up their preeminent position, and yet both wanted to meet. And so there's a paper trail of the negotiations that took place between the embassy and the court to organize this meeting. And they decided to do a meeting in private without ceremonies, as they said, which meant without anyone attending, without witness, because that allowed them to set up the space and even agree the timing and the pace at which the two rulers would meet. So there had to be, I think, 
an odd number of windows so that they could meet near the window in the middle. They would have to enter the room at the same time, approach each other at equal pace, all of which served to signify equality between the two rulers. But this was only possible for the emperor, who would not normally tolerate an equal in the same room, as it were, because it was kept private. So it was seen to have no political implication in that sense. And an encounter like this and the confrontations over precedence or hierarchy show how the contemporaries still managed to negotiate through nonverbal ritual language, status, sovereignty, and all sorts of formal and informal relations. Now, this was not specific to the emperor nor to the Tsar or Russia. There's a very famous example that occurred in 1661 in London when the ambassador of the Sun King Louis XIV competed with the Spanish ambassador over the place of honor during a festive entry of a Swedish diplomat into the English capital. And the Spanish kept the upper hand after they had attacked members of the French retinue, which resulted in the death of several people and the killing of horses. But Louis XIV threatened to declare war on Spain if the Spanish king did not recognize the precedence of Louis XIV. So these confrontations over hierarchy could burst out in violence as well. And diplomatic history in the early modern period is punctuated with such, such episodes and might seem strange to us today. But the question that historians would have is why was that significant to the people that lived through these struggles, these confrontations? What about the practice of uh, gifts? I've understood that you have looked a little bit of that also, the um, importance of giving gifts to one each other. One example being the animals, but there were also other things. Gifts played an important role because they served as an extension of this whole ceremonial machinery. Gifts could symbolize equality or hierarchy, which is why we have so many records about which gifts were received or given in the archives because the courts paid very close attention to the value of gifts, the quantity of gifts, in order to reciprocate, in order to be able to give back. So in order to avoid the impression that you are only the receiver of something, but you are also in the power to give yourself and even give more. That was an important part of it. And then There's also a lot of ambivalence about gifts and whether they are seen as an object that is given freely or whether the other party would interpret it as a tribute and therefore presented in a relationship of dependence rather than independence and sovereignty. So yeah, the role of gifts was, was very important in diplomatic practice. And that would be not comparable to things like bribes or things that you see today? <laughs> I think the transition between gift, bribe, tribute can be very fluid. It's very much in the eye of the beholder, what counted as a gift or a bribe or a tribute. But, and that's typical for diplomacy, it wasn't enough for one person to declare an object to be a tribute or a gift. That had to be met with recognition. So there had to be agreement what this actually was. And if there wasn't agreement, there was conflict. And then the discussion would start in the negotiation of what this actually meant. And often such discussions would result in ambiguity on the one hand. On the other hand, 
because gifts were part of protocol and the clerks in the relevant court offices, institutions would produce this enormous amount of records about gifts. It was also a very formalized process where it was quite clear what was expected as a gift in response to the objects that had been given on a previous occasion. So there you don't have that ambiguity. But in general, if gifts were being exchanged in a conflictual kind of context, then the interpretation of gifts could also change. You said earlier that these practices of diplomacy in early modern history inform U.S. historians quite a lot about what was going on there in terms of diplomacy. So what can you learn from these case studies? That's right. Diplomatic history is not self-serving. So there's something else you can learn from studying diplomatic history other than knowing about Peter the Great meeting Leopold I or a particular treaty or peace negotiations. There are three things that spring to my mind are first that studying diplomacy in the early modern period helps us debunk the kind of myths and stereotypes about other cultures, countries, political communities that often originate in the pre-modern world. The critique against the dynastic court and its lavish ceremonial lifestyle often presented these rituals as oriental pomp and that was then associated with for example muscovy or the ottoman empire whereas in fact as the london 1661 example shows between the spanish and the french ambassadors such rituals were a central element of diplomacy they were sort of a strategic element of diplomatic encounter and not a sign of oriental otherness. So looking at concrete encounters, analyzing the strategies, the behavior patterns, the mutual responses of diplomats helps us to rethink some of these stereotypes. And then secondly, it helped me to study a period on its own account rather than constructing continuities that point to sort of constant development, improvement, and modernization. Studying early modern diplomacy helped me sharpen the eye for the social and the political practices that have shaped the development of diplomacy and how these resulted from very different historical circumstances, rather than being part of a line of continuity from, I don't know, the peace of Westphalia to modern-day summit diplomacy or peace conferences. And thirdly, it's also helped to, as they say, provincialize Europe in the sense that in my own work, I include the Russian and the Ottoman empires in my study of early modern diplomacy, which is something that hadn't been done before so much because both empires were not seen to be part of the European state system until very late in the 18th century, because they didn't have permanent embassies until the early 18th century in the Russian case, the late 18th century in the Ottoman case, because they didn't have a professional diplomatic corps. They didn't have all the ingredients that are connected to our modern understanding of diplomacy and therefore couldn't be part of the development of modern diplomacy to begin with. 
But if you start to appreciate sort of the political, social practices and environment that informed diplomatic practice at the time and compare that across Europe and the Russian and the Ottoman empires, it helps us look beyond this sort of grand narrative of modern development and modern diplomacy, which to some extent had previously excluded the Russian and the Ottoman empires. You were a fellow here at SCAS in 2020-2021. What was your experience of the multi- and interdisciplinary research environment? It's a very special experience because I was there during COVID. But the SCAS team did everything in their power to make sure that SCAS stays true to its mission. To create, as you say, an interdisciplinary research environment that inspires and leads to new corporations. And in my case this worked out quite well because I am, as it happens, on my way to Berlin to meet a colleague that I've been introduced to at SCAS because we want to collaborate on a journal article. So apart from collaboration and meeting people, even under COVID circumstances, SCAS also provided a space for ideas to grow, which is less and less possible in university environments because of the teaching load, the administrative burden. And so this was really a unique opportunity to develop my work. I think what is typical for an institution like SCAS is that it provides the perfect mix between solitude and community, both of which I think are essential to productive scholarship. And SCAS in particular manages to combine solitude and community in a very efficient way. You mentioned the collaboration in Berlin, but any other inspiration that you've taken with you for your further academic career? Probably about the role of an institution like SCAS, which provides you this space far removed from your responsibilities at university. But I think it works so well because it complements the university experience. So it's not simply the ivory tower to which you want to withdraw permanently to just continue writing and reading but it's perfect for one year to um, take yourself out of your own context your own environment to sit down and concentrate and think so i think in terms of careers the relationship between my own professional environment and the opportunity that an institute like SCAS offers that makes it so valuable I'm a little bit curious. You have previously been a member of the Young Academy at the Berlin-Brandenburg Academy of Sciences and Humanities and also at the German National Academy of Sciences Leopoldina. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you did there in these positions that you had? First of all, I learned a lot about the importance of academic self-governance in a truly multidisciplinary environment because the members of the Young Academy come from all the entire spectrum of scholarship, natural sciences, humanities, social sciences, they're artists. And because the Young Academy enjoys a lot of independence, it needs to govern itself and govern its budget. And I learned a lot about the diplomacy behind such meetings. 
at the annual meeting that we had in Berlin, but also the, um, the other meetings that took place, I think, three times a year. And then there was a lot of sort of content work. We founded a working group called Internationalization, not because we wanted to further the process as such and develop tools that would help universities, research institutes, and so on, to internationalize themselves or others, but because we understood that the process is happening and we wanted to get to the bottom of what drives this, this process, internationalization. What do people mean by internationalization when they use the term, when they describe their university within this context? And so we did a podcast on the role of the monograph in the humanities in times of internationalization, because we observed that many authors are non-English speaking authors are more and more seeking the opportunity of publishing with university presses, which we thought would have epistemological consequences for research because the questions you ask can be different. The whole publishing process is, is different. The expectations that presses have towards both the authors and audiences are different. So what does internationalization do with the way in which we think and write? And so we did this um, podium discussion at the Leipzig Book Fair and turned it into a podcast. Why is internationalization interesting? Because on the one hand, good research is always international by default. Internationalization is happening at the same time. Academic systems are so strongly connected to national traditions in academic life, to um, bureaucratic procedure, and so on and so forth. And what we are interested in is this tension between the drive to internationalize and the shape of academia itself, which is embedded in a very national environment. Thank you very much for joining me and our listeners, of course, on this podcast, Gas Talks. Thank you. And thank you for listening to SCAS Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. We have listened to Jan Hennings, Associate Professor of History and Head of the Department of History at the Central European University in Vienna. He was fellow at SCAS during the academic year of 2020-2021. This was the third episode in our theme Diplomacy and International Relations and we have talked about diplomacy and early modern history. The first episode in this theme has the title Captured by Russians, Enslaved by Jungers, New Approaches to Global Diplomacy and features Lisa Hellman, docent in history at Lund University. And in the second episode with the title On War, Power and History, we heard Hassem Kandil, Cambridge University Professor of Historical and Political Sociology and Fellow of St. Katharina's College. These are episodes 45 and 46, respectively. SCAS Talks is a podcast that features a broad variety of topics, which is a reflection of the multi- and interdisciplinary research environment. We are sure that there is something of interest for everyone. Find your favorite topic or surprise yourself with something new. As always, we are very happy if you can recommend SCAS Talks to your colleagues and friends. Subscribe to us and you won't miss any new content. 
Scas Talks is available on Podbean, iTunes, Spotify and most podcast apps. I would like to thank Jan Hennings once again for talking to me. And thanks to you for listening. Bye for now.